candy-colored clown they call the Sandman Tiptoes to my room every night Just to sprinkle stardust Testing, 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 testing Testing, this is the DC Screens podcast We're going to be talking about our favorite film of all time uh, Mac and Me (laughs) Cassie Superior Homage Slash you know, Godard said the best way to criticize a film is to make a better film. Alright, okay. And this is what. So, again, we initially thought it would be best to record our thoughts on both Orpheus and Woman in the Dunes together and present that as one extended episode, but we decided to cut them up and present them as two separate episodes instead. So, this is part two of two on Woman in the Dunes. Can I start? Can I start with one of the dunes? Can uh, I do it? Yeah, I guess. No, go ahead. What, no, no, no. I, I, like I, I had no, I had no weed, and actually, I was just gonna bullshit. So you do it. <laughs> okay. Okay. So something really uh, interesting, I think. Well, at least for me, um, I love, I love, love, love Asian cinema, especially of, of this time period. And I think that uh, Tashigahara, it's it's interesting. I didn't, I actually didn't know this, but he actually uh, did the final two episodes of the Zatoichi TV series with uh, Shintaro Katsu in 1978, which I thought was really cool. Um, And he, of course, did The Face of Another. There were so many, like... Facial reconstructive movies, I feel like, going on around this time. But anyway, yeah, it was like so, the seventies. Yeah, like, it's just on the face. yeah, there's exactly. Another one too that's uh, uh, is it the, the one with there are at least Jones, two more. I don't remember. There are at least like Mars or something. I can't. Yeah, I wish I would have be remembered. Like a weird like f- facial reconstruction <laughs> trope. Yeah, <laughs> I mean you can see. I, I guess it, maybe it's, it's part of that renewed interest in noir, right? Because um, um, yeah, was it Johnny Handsome, the one where. Mickey Rourke starts out ugly and then he gets surgery and looks like Mickey Rourke at the end. Yeah, or um, Humphrey Bogart. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it starts out with a dark passage. Dark passage, right? He has a different face. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I mean, but there are others that are that are very similar to the face of another, and I just can't remember the name of them right now. That you mentioned one, but there was another one that I just I can't remember. But anyway, um, so he directed Face of Another, um, Woman in the Dunes won the special jury prize at Cannes. Uh, I don't I don't know if it was 1964 or the year after. I guess it would be 65 maybe. Uh, but I just, the one thing I really would recommend when you go watch this movie, and hopefully you will go see it, is seriously, and I'm, I'm being, I say this, I do not say this in jest, uh, bring a lot of water. Because I remember I, I watched this movie and I was so thirsty throughout the, ho- the whole thing. They did such a good job of making that dryness and that, graininess and the heat just so palpable i felt like it just kind of my whole apartment felt like it was just the driest thing Mm -hmm. and i felt like i was in the friggin sahara even though this is not in the sahara but you know i i needed water at least every 20 minutes and the kind of abstract moments the uh, teshigahara gives us um that kind of make sand look like water where it's kind of you know it's there's shot from a distance it's mm-hmm. kind of flowing and it has a kind of inviting look to it um which of course is part of the thing that's the agonizing the protagonist you know he doesn't have to use any kind of effects necessarily to show us the idea that you know someone could be driven mad with thirst and you know see water where it's not like that idea that this is a you know a, you know something that looks like the exact opposite of what it is you know that you know those shots of sand that look kind of like water or waves that look very kind of like silky mm-hmm. and smooth and inviting when in fact it's just you know who'd hate this movie anakin skywalker <laughs> That's good. i don't like sand it's coarse and 
rough and irritating, and it gets everywhere. Episode two reference for all of you, for all of you like trolling millennials who find the, the, the second trilogy superior to the actual trilogy. Yes, but I mean, I think that, that that's interesting because the oasis or that need, you know, you always see people in the desert and they go mad because they, they don't reach water, right? This is not what drives the madness here. It's not the fact that you're in the desert and there's no water. There is so much more going on in this movie, and I feel like it's it's just the it's limited in dialogue in contrast to something like um the, like oh uh, orpheus which is so rich in dialogue but i feel like it's 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 a minimalist film but it's done in a way that's so successful that you really don't need any more right that's really all you need mm-hmm. is just the shots that you're given and the little bit of dialogue it's not like this this dialogue is quotable it's just regular human interaction yeah, i think that i mean i think the script is compelling especially yeah. some of the ruminations of uh um the the protagonist we, i just always think of him as the entomologist or the man mm-hmm. um, the, way the man a, in the dunes <laughs> he has a he has a name junpei niki at the very end like the the report that reveals that he's been lost the missing for seven years. Yeah, god seven one. years i know Seven years in the desert. <sighs> uh, well, at least, well, and then for the right. rest of his life, essentially, it's implied, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and nothing about the world of, which is a good recognizable contemporary reality, but it's an absurd kind of fantastical reality, too, much like with Orpheus, except this is a much darker reality. Mm-hmm. Nothing about the situation that, you know, there has to be someone to shovel the sand to stop it yeah. from, you know, blowing out the other houses, and they use the sand to, like, to sell to factories. Right. Like, like none of that makes any sense and that's a deliberate choice right like it's, mm-hmm. it's a very kafka-esque kind of absurd situation for someone to find themselves in or and beckett i actually thought of beckett when i read this i thought of a beckett play and yeah. uh what is it the nog and uh, endgame but maybe oh, I'm yeah, wrong. No, you might you might be right but anyway there's there's also sand and it's very absurd and i feel like this this kind of uh, reminded me more of like the theater of the absurd and echoing something like you would see in Ionesco or Beckett. And, and it's just, like you said, I mean, there's this very absurd quality, but mm-hmm. we accept it wholeheartedly. And we're, we're drawn into this world of isolation and confinement and claustrophobia. And it becomes very real to the point where we just feel for these characters. Um, and, and it's, it's, it's a very compelling narrative, like you said. Absolutely. Um, I think all those affinities with, uh, like you said, uh, Ionesco, um, Beckett, uh, which Kafka, um, all of those things. You uh, said Kafka. I said Kafka. Well, <laughs> Whatever. Yeah. Same thing. Um, you know, that idea of, um, well, you know, Pirandello. We, Sorry. Yeah, okay. yeah, we, we're, I mean, we're, we're, and, uh, we, you were going to bring it up the, the connections with the myth of Sisyphus. So yes. kind of not the actual myth of Sisyphus, but then the, the, the Camus, Sisyphean that Camus essay, the myth of Sisyphus, like, I don't know if this film is as optimistic as Camus is an essay, but that idea of the Sisyphus myth as a kind of master narrative for man's fruitless struggle for liberation to set himself apart from society, whatever, however we want to interpret it, I mean, that's at the heart of this movie in some way, right? Right. This this futility of, of this effort that's driving us, right? And, and there's this one point where he says uh, – he says, are you shoveling sand to live or living to shovel sand? So what are we living for? Are, are we living to die? Are we living to, are we dying? To, I don't know. I, I don't know what the purpose is in this no. film. I don't even know if we know what the, I mean, it's like the Orpheus constant struggle, gives right? us the idea that, you know, we can wake up or we can, we can find some, something that's significant in meaning, and meaning mm-hmm. some, some steady foundation to, to land on or to stand on. Um, but in this film, I mean, not so much here. Everything is, everything is sand. It runs through your fingers. You sink into it. I mean, it's 
And the sand is just like a beautiful, first of all, it's just a beautiful thing to look at in the abstract. There's so many mm-hmm. kind of, you know, aesthetic moments that are so compelling and pleasing um, that don't necessarily serve a strict narrative function. And there's some that do that horrifying moment early on in the film where he, you know, the protagonist is trying to climb out of this hole and just the whole wall just kind of collapses. Yeah. And it's, it's a wide shot too. It all just kind of cracks apart and falls down. And it's, I mean, the other person I was thinking of less, uh, less of a highbrow figure than the one I mentioned, but even like a, it was like an HP Lovecraft story without the monster, without any of the kind mm. of like weird backstory, but just the idea of, you know, coming across this kind of rural isolated place and there are these kind of grotesque villagers and you're kind of roped yeah. into this bizarre ritual. They're that, barbarians. You know, yeah. And they're, they're so, uh, they're so cruel and they're so oblivious to their own cruelty. I know. Um, I don't know. Uh, do you think this is a horror film? Yeah, I think it is. And I think the, the music, key, you know, kind of cues us mm-hmm. into that. And I think throughout the whole movie, there are these very unsettling scenes. And you get this kind of thriller slash uh, horror music, you know, kind of in the background that, that makes us feel even more on edge. We don't know what to expect. We don't feel comfortable in this environment. And yes, sand is beautiful, but it also buries you, right? It also covers you up. And and so she says something, and it gives you rashes, apparently. Like she says, why you don't sleep with clothes on here. You sleep uh, you know, naked because it'll give you rashes because of the moisture, and it'll bury your family, basically. Her yeah, husband her and her husband child are gone in a sandstorm. Yeah. Um, the quicksand will, will bury you as well um everything about this this environment is just uh it's brutal and it's it's harmful and it it's um what would make you want to stay here yeah and eventually the protagonist does decide to stay mate because he he realizes that one life is one way of living is just as good as any other like being i don't know why being being trapped in a hole just digging sand and maybe finding water which is a one of Maybe that's just as much of a trap as, as being a school teacher and finding bugs and wanting to publish in a exactly. journal. I don't know. I mean, I really... Uh, it's really uh, kind of funny, the the woman, uh, the way that she frames his, 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 his anxiety and his panic and his horror at being caught in the situation is that, you know... He misses life in places like Tokyo, you know, as, right. if, as if it's a city country distinction. There's life in the right. city where lots of stuff is happening. And then there's this giant hole in the sand where we're constantly digging Which is the sand. country. <laughs> Which is the country. Like, country mouse, if, city mouse. As if that were the, you know, the problem. Um, right. Which is, again, there is a little bit of a... Uh, but it's the world out there that she's talking about, right? Yeah. She's like, I'm not as pretty as the girls in Tokyo. Mm-hmm. I'm not, you know, uh, life out there. There's nothing for me out mm-hmm. there. I would just walk around. And he's like, well, you'd be free to walk around. Mm-hmm. Um, but she says people care about me here. The only reason why they care about me is, is because I'm here, because mm-hmm. I'm in this dune. Um, but I think what, what really struck me in this movie is these references to uh, living like animals. And I think – I really started to question what does it mean to live like a human being versus an animal. Um, there are so many, you know, there's one part where, where the man says, I refuse to draw, to die like a dog. And then later he says, here we are ruthlessly exploited yet happily wagging our tails. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. we're content to live this life, you know, that is not exactly fulfilling. It's just, we're just living day to day, right. With really no purpose. doesn't matter if we're in a sand trap. It doesn't matter if we're out in the quote unquote real world. Uh, we're not really doing much more. And I think the, the, the horrifying part of this movie is when he says people only care about themselves, right? But really, no one cares about him. No one comes looking for him. No one really 
gives two shits about this guy. And it's like, no one cares. No one, no one's going to come looking for you. Yeah. What, what does your life matter? Really? (laughs) I'm having a breakdown here. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I feel like that's why this movie exists to like uh, (laughs) induce existential dread in its viewers. (laughs) So definitely go check it out. It's uh, at the end. (laughs) No, but it, but it Um, is, I mean, you know, there are a lot of good questions in this film, right? I mean, I mean, I, you know, I've, saw this movie a couple times now and I will continue to watch it again and again throughout my life. I think I don't think it's one of those films that you just kind of watch once and forget about. No, there's no way. Um, and going back to the villagers, you, you know, you talked about how horrible they were and how cruel. And, and there's another part going back to the animal, uh, the animal way of life. Uh, they, when they ask him to have sex with, with the woman uh, in order for them to, he's, he will be granted a view of the sea for 30 minutes, right? If he possibly, just possibly, yeah. if he just has sex with her in front of them, in front of a whole bunch of people and it's like this this crazy moment where they're on drums and people yeah. are wearing masks yeah they're wearing and, the masks yeah. yeah and he says who cares we're living like animals anyway but in her right? mind she refuses because in her she mind does. they're not like, she calls mind, him an idiot has purpose and that's dignity, true whereas you know for him it's it's only miss a matter of perspective it's like, a good point he sees himself as trapped but she sees himself she sees herself as having a, a purpose and a place in the world and she doesn't want to leave it's a place right it's, yeah it's a purpose yeah no that's a good point yeah she's she's uh despairing when she's finally removed from she the protests mm-hmm. she mm-hmm. says no no over and over and over yeah protesting or just or just you know in in you know, whatever um and uh yeah and the idea of human beings as animals and human beings as monsters, which we definitely see that mm-hmm. in the scene where the villagers are trying to get them to kind of put on this sex show for them. Um, and the idea of the self as a monster, that's also in line with a lot of kind of Lovecraftian mm. ideas and, you know, or like his disciples, like Thomas Ligotti, he has, you know, it connects with a lot of the kind of deeper themes of horror literature, uh, weird stories, however you want to characterize these, mm-hmm. you know, genres, especially in the United States, because that is, uh, he turns on himself in the end, right? He becomes, he goes from being a prisoner of other people to the person, he is the the person who's keeping himself there. He, he telling himself he chooses to be there, but in the end, something has happened to him that has turned him into his own jailer. Yeah. What do you think it means that he discovers water at the end? What's the significance of that in the ground? He digs up hole. Mm-hmm. He's trying to. He has some elaborate idea to trap a crow and give it a message right. or something like that. To get but to instead, escape. Yeah, but instead he finds this kind of natural pump for water, and he has all this stuff written down about how to how to make it work, and he has all these elaborate plans, and it's become a project for him. What's the meaning of that? I think I think that. Uh, well, he gets rid of his – I think it's his new purpose, right? He has to have some purpose and be driven by something because he is a teacher, right? Every time he describes himself, he's like, I'm a teacher. They're going to come looking for me, the PTA, the school board, the whatever. Um, and he's he's above manual labor, right, when he talks about this. But I think that he gives up his bugs. He, like, burns them in mm-hmm. a fire. He gives up his his notes and looking for – once he finds his, uh, what, tiger beetle. I don't even know if it's the variation he's looking for. Um, but he kind of gives up on that endeavor. And once he finds water, he says, well, I can't wait to share this with the people, with the villagers. I think they'd like to hear about it. Um, And I think that he just needs something 
to tell himself, I think it's a lie. I think he lies to himself and he says, this is my purpose now. This is what I have discovered. This is my, like you said, project, I think is a good word. Um, but it gives him something to do instead of, you know, drawing sticks on the wall of your prison to, sh- to show how many days you're, you've been in jail. He's counting the, the water line each day, right. To mm-hmm. see how many inches it's either risen or fallen. Um, and I think that becomes his way of not only measuring time, because once again, I think it's just a matter to him. It's like, well, just one day after another day after another day, what difference does it make? But it's also his way of maybe giving him the last bit of purpose he can look for in his life. Yeah. And that's, I mean, all the stuff about him, you know, kind of lying to himself or becoming his own jailer. Like that's our interpretation. That's like, true. Yeah, yeah. The film doesn't Cause we're bleak. <laughs> yeah. We're putting the bleakest possible spin on this. I mean, we're pessimistic assholes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because there could be there could be another reading of this movie that's more optimistic that you know is there? I mean there is maybe. I mean why who's to say there's not that this right. is, that this is you know that his place in in the hole, you know, trapped in in the dunes, um he is not really different than anyone. Like everyone's life is some version of this and that's all we can ever hope for is to be, you know, trapped somewhere we're all trapped. We're all we're all stuck on this, you know, tiny planet in this uh, hostile cosmos that, you know, we talked about Rilke earlier. Mm-hmm. He has that beautiful line in the Duino elegies about Oh my god, you're getting something. about the what I think it's the the cosmos like uh something about like a, a coolly uh you know chooses not to destroy us. I'm I'm kind of butchering the translation, but this idea that, you know, the universe could just do away with us at any, us at any time. We're all temporary. Our experiences are purely ephemeral. Our sense that we are not trapped, that we are free is always an illusion. And where he finds himself at the end of this film is where we all find ourselves all the time. It's the only place where anyone ever really is, uh, which is hoping against hope that the future will be if not better, at least different. And that's probably all there is to life and then you die at the end. Do you think that maybe... Okay. Um, do you think that maybe the reason why he stays is because he says he says something in the middle, maybe towards the middle of the movie, like, sometimes I like to make my own trap. Um, so when it becomes clear that he's no longer trapped by the woman in the dunes and he has made the trap now for himself, um, you know, because there is freedom. Freedom is the ladder that he can climb out of and he can go back to the life as he knew it before he was quote unquote trapped in that dune. Um, but now he's trapped himself. So it's of his own making. I think that has something to do with things quite a bit. And I think it's important to note that the, that in the beginning of the film, he's alone and he's alone at the end of the film in the desert. Um, we know that he has a life outside of this that he's coming from, but when we are introduced to him, he's wandering alone in the desert looking for bugs. And when we see him at the end, he's also alone in the desert, just in a different, um, location. Yeah. And his relationship with, or his attitude towards the woman is, I think one of the most ambiguous things, yeah. whether whether he has genuine affection for her, whether it's just a question of boredom, whether he sees her as his fellow prisoner, or whether he sees her as, you know, his kind of principal jailer. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, in her mind, she's not trapped. This is just her life. This right. is where she lives. This is what she does. And I don't, I mean, obviously she wants to not be alone so she's glad to have him there even when she disdains what he does and she's horrified at leaving this place that has become her 
you know, her world and her purpose. Um, and part of that is surely she's sad to be separated from him. I don't think there's like a real, there's a sexual connection there. I don't think there's a romantic connection. Right. But I don't know how he feels watching her leave. We don't get anything in the kind of the voiceover, the kind of his internal ruminations that he's going to miss her. But something about seeing her go seems to break him or at least push him to decide to stay, stay in the hole, stay mm -hmm. in the trap because it's his trap now. I don't, know, I don't know what to make of that, honestly. Yeah. But I think it's a, speaks well of the film that you this is not something you're going to be uh, you, this is not a film you're going to stop thinking about uh, after you've seen it or even days after you've seen it and mm -hmm. I think again seeing it with an audience and having that shared experience of being perplexed and being frustrated and being kind of set on edge by a lot of the implications of this film is yeah. I'm skeptical about uh, our ability to get downtown on sunday to see orpheus quite honestly yeah. i'm definitely going to be there um uh the following weekend to see this movie uh at the nga i think it's going to be a, and it's going to be on film i think it's be a, a real delight to see other things that we want to say about this before we wrap things up i think the other you know, maybe the I only thing is that, radio in both films <laughs> yeah both films involve radio so that's well, actually the I mean, it radio is, is like the, the outside. From the outside, right. right? And like, what do they mean? And is it because the radio in Woman of the Dunes is not important in its presence, but in the idea that they might get a radio and then they do mm -hmm. and it's too late, it doesn't matter. Um, right. The outside world doesn't mean anything by the time it arrives. And I also think that, again, maybe part of what puts these films in uh, Virginia Dwan's selection for this series is that both of these directors um, are accomplished in art forms outside of film itself. Teshigahara, um, apparently, I haven't seen a lot of his other films. Apparently, they're quite uh, you know different from this one. Uh, I, like a lot of people, the first time I ever heard of this movie was because it was in Roger Ebert's uh, great, as was Orpheus in his great movies oh. uh, series. He wrote out this, and that the I think when I originally read about it. You know, he was disturbed that the director was no longer interested in his older work, and it for a long time it was almost impossible to find this film. Period on VHS wow. to find a, a reel. Um, I think it was Milestone. Eventually got it print together, and now of course you can stream it, and it's easy to find. Um, but it was feared lost for a long time. Um, and fear uh, not. Fear Sorry. not. I feel like there's always. I don't. That's not something that happens too much anymore. But you know, I think scenes have been lost from. Yeah. Certain oh films, yeah. Though. Like especially but older films. films. But I mean, films. I remember in the late '90s there was a rumor going around that Nashville, Robert Altman's Nashville, had been lost. Hmm. Like there were no existing prints of it, or at least um, like negatives. Like maybe there were some, you know, projector prints, but there were no. There was no. There were no quality materials left, which of course turned out to not be true. Um, but that seems to happen less often now because of much-needed preservation effort, preservation efforts. Um, but anyway, uh, Teshigahara was apparently his. He's the son of the uh, founder and grandmaster of the Sogetsu Institute, which uh, is you know, has apparently kept uh, Ikebana alive into the 21st century. Which, from our uh, ignorant backwards perspective, is the art of arranging flowers i'm sure there's a lot more to it yeah. than that. um but he is someone that has uh you know 
not just been a filmmaker and is not necessarily even like a kind of, you know, a filmmaker's filmmaker, like cinephile, like someone like Godard is or someone like Truffaut is mm-hmm. or someone, um, what am I thinking of? Um, Jean-Pierre Melville, like where they're kind of obsessed with Hollywood films and they're right. kind of reworking them. He seems to stand outside the the seductive power of film as a medium and kind of maybe he'll be um, even a bit critical about uh, film and the way that film and the filmmaking seems to regard itself as, you know, creating these permanent works of art when in fact it's probably just as ephemeral on a long enough time scale. Yeah, the sand will bury it eventually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> as, as a flower arrangement. And, you know, part of what um, a lot of the uh, Duan Gallery uh, is known for is kind of um, exhibiting or facilitating uh, kind of works that are installations in nature. You know, like a lot of it's, a lot of the work seems to feature kind of like recycled materials. Um, yeah, obviously, they're not present, but the you know the images of kind of installations in nature that the Noir Gallery had either you know helped to facilitate um, or sponsor. Um, I think there's there's one that I uh, there's a kind of like almost you know trying to it's uh, photographs kind of printed on the wall at the National Gallery to kind of give a sense of scale. It's called uh, Star Axis, and it's, it's still there somewhere. I think it's in either uh, New Mexico or Arizona, and looks some, like some kind of like temple. Mm. Uh, but in fact, it's you know it was created in 1971. But it kind of looks mm. ancient and kind of looks, meditative quality. Yeah, yeah, kind of interacts with the natural world. In so a way kind of that, like you know, found art, but in nature. Yeah, or or that it's or that it's integrated with nature. Um, okay, and that you know the natural world and the natural world's ability to transform the work is part of the work itself. That's interesting. Kind of like a, also. Um, the Scottish artist Andrew Goldsworthy. I don't think he's like a Duong gallery person, but he also does the thing where he'll build like a temporary structure in a river somewhere and, you know, the river oh. will wash it away, things like that. Jean-Claude, uh, Christo and Jean-Claude did that too. They have like these yeah. more large structures that they have on display at like islands or like the gates in New York and then mm-hmm. they have them in just a, and then they'll take them down after a week or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there seems to be like a, like a sense of that in at least Woman in the Dunes, maybe not so much in, in Orpheus. Right meditating and uh, dwelling on, ruminating on uh, the natural world's ability to transform us or to bury us. Maybe the part of the natural world that is burying us in Orpheus is our mind. Because when we go into the zone in Orpheus, which is, I guess, you know, the gateway to Hades, it's like the river Styx or Mm -hmm. something, um, you know, the chauffeur says, this place is populated with men's memories and the ruins of their faults or something like that and so maybe instead of like the actual landscape it's it's something that is more uh that's less uh tangible and more uh conceptual yeah but it's no less a part of the natural right. world our consciousness psychology it's a part of us this i mean there's a lot of you know with all the kind of fairy tale and kind of fantastical imagery in orpheus and the mythological imagery it's also very kind of psychoanalytic there's a lot oh, of yeah, totally. stuff going on and that is also part of this series of natural forces that threaten to consume us in the same way that the sand and the um again the animal instincts of mm-hmm. the characters in Woman the dunes are part of the forces that threaten and perhaps eventually do consume them right all right uh so on that incredibly bleak note um we are going to leave you we are going to be back hopefully next week. We're going to try to stay on a weekly schedule from here on out. I know we did take a fairly long uh, holiday break. Um, we'll be talking about some other films playing in the area.
we're not exactly sure what we're going to focus on, but uh, they will be coming to a theater near you. We'll get back to you. Coming attractions. Coming attractions. 